So I had a goal in 2020 that I would not ask to do that again, and I'm winning thus far. You're welcome, Tracy. Uh, if you have a Bible, John 4 is where we're going to be uh, for the majority of our time. Let me drink some water, because I was trying to rush up here, so I wouldn't have to ask again. Ooh, H2O, Bobby Boucher. So... Um, did y'all catch that water boy? Yes. <laughs> no, didn't caught that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for catching my quirks and my um as those are called holy rabbit trails. Welcome to the brook. And so this is a very interesting uh, day in that it, it it almost closes one chapter and starts another. And anytime there's transition, there's all of these emotions that you start to start to feel. Uh, me and my family, we actually were in Atlanta. Uh, till about 12 a.m. yesterday. And so we hopped in the car, we broke some laws, um, and we got here. So yeah, amen, I repented as I was driving. Uh, but we got here uh, just in time because we wanted to be here to celebrate with our family locally. But what was beautiful and rich was the reminder that took place over this last week was that, man, in 2009, um, a group of us moved from Texas to help plant a church in Atlanta um, with the idea that it would be a blueprint, a picture, a model of what it would look like to plant churches in other cities across the world, um, churches that got the gospel, they were committed to truth, but they also got culture and they were committed to seeing the truth transform the places where they were at. And so we, we were part of that. And um, this Sunday, right now, they're celebrating their 10-year um, anniversary, which is pretty awesome considering. Um, but just to look back and just see different faces and to say, man, like God, for like such a time as this, you, you wove all of these stories together. And to even just think like, I can't tell the story of my life well without telling the story of other people's lives and how he brought us together. And I just started thinking about that, and I was like, well, God, it's, it's really awesome, it's cool, and when we celebrate and we stand with our brothers and our sisters in Atlanta, Georgia, which is not the Mecca, by the way, don't go there. Like, Miami needs more Christians as well. Yeah, all these Christians, I gotta get to Atlanta, I gotta get to Tampa. No, you don't. Um, anyway, uh, that's a little soapbox. Uh, but it, it was good to just kind of, like, look there and, and be refreshed, but then also, again, we were rushing to get here because in the same way where I was like, man, like, I cannot tell the story of my life well, personally, without these people back then. I cannot tell the story of my life well without these people right here. And that's big for me. And so that may mean nothing for you at all. Um, but for me, that's huge. Because I don't say that like, you're, like some of y'all are, who are members, y'all, y'all have more than just names on, on a roster. Like y'all are family. Like our stories have been woven together forever, guys. And, and, and I'm grateful for God in that way. Um, we are going to start a series called The Wounded Healer, uh, a series um, where we're going to have Carlos and Neil um, lead out in that, um, myself as well, looking through the life of Joseph, and we're going to learn the language of forgiveness because uh, some of us are too comfortable with broken relationships. Say it again. Too comfortable with brokenness. You're like, oh yeah, this arm's broken. This relationship's broken, but it's okay. It's not. Um, and so we wanted to learn the language of forgiveness because that's the language of the gospel. Um, and, and so we are going to get there, but we're going to start that next week. So if you came, because like, that sounded like cool, so I wanted that. But now you have to come next week, amen, and keep coming. Um, but for today, uh, we're just going to look at something that devotionally has been rich for me, especially in the last 48 hours. 
Um, and actually, it's, it's actually pretty dear to, to my life. Uh, all of the scriptures, they are a window and a mirror. They're a window into who God is. They tell the story of who God is. But they're a mirror into the human hearts. They tell the story of who we are as well. And so there's moments in when you look at the scriptures, you see God richly, then you see yourself, and life change happens. And God used this scripture particularly to do that for my wife, that he used John for this latter part to, to move her in a way where she, in faith, married me. Praise God for that. Right? So this is very dear for me. And so even as we unpack the layers of John 4, some of y'all might get married because of this. You're welcome. Um, and others, you might have different avenues of life. But my prayer is that the richness of what's happening here would not escape us. It starts to unpack some essential truth regarding the nature of faith and the timing of who God is and how God operates. I'm actually going to read it straight through and then we'll look at it bit by bit. We'll, we'll look at the this confrontation at the beginning, some statements that Jesus makes, and then we'll close with some things that I think may be, may be helpful, really a question and a statement. Um, let's get after it. John 4, 46, it reads like this. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, uh, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea, to Galilee, he, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You can underline that. And it's a very frequent refrain in John. The official said to, to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your son will live. The man believed, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is about one o'clock, an hour past noon, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came or had to come from Judea to Galilee. It's a lot here. Let me preface it by saying this. Um, this passage is bathed with levels of vulnerability and dependence and vulnerability and dependence are very frightening words to the human heart, especially people who are high achievers and we just work hard and it's by our strength and our grit. We just make stuff happen. And you hear words like vulnerability and dependence and they sound like cuss words. They sound like, like weakness. And yes, it is a weakness, not necessarily a cuss word. And we, we look at it as like vulnerability, dependence. That sounds like a liability. And I just need to say, even on the front end, it can be, but vulnerability and dependence, they become assets if God is trustworthy and strong. And so as, as much as this passage is bathed with vulnerability and dependence, it's also bathed with expressions of the trustworthiness and strength of Jesus. And so the collision of the two should hopefully transform how we see vulnerability and dependence by giving life to this word called Faith, it's rich, it's all throughout here. But it starts off 
at the end of this interesting confrontation where Jesus has just unraveled one um, woman, a Samaritan woman, to get to the deepest parts of her heart, thirst for more, lady, is what he says to her, because she's drinking from broken wells. She's not really finding life. And he's like, you, you, you have this pain in you that I want to heal. And so it's on the heels of that. He's going back to a place that he's already been before and he's already done miraculous things that his fame has spread so much so that the whole region knows about Jesus. This is a huge deal because the nomenclature of Cana is changed forever. It's Cana where Jesus turned water to wine. Have you ever had these moments? So I'm in this weird reflective space. I've actually been in this space since like about November because November I went to Texas where I grew up, the great country of Texas. And then I was in Atlanta this last week. And so it was like, man, this is like nostalgia, like on 10. This is a little too much, you know? So anyway, so like, but have you ever gone someplace that you knew and then like you start to associate this place with stuff that you did? Like, so I'm in Houston, I'm driving, I'm like, yo, that's where I can't say it because I'm you know being recorded. But how did I tell my wife like that's what that happened? And it was just a very interesting like scene. And like and, and we have a way of marking places, but oftentimes the, the most vivid memories are the ones that suck, where there's a lot of pain, where it's like, oh man, like that's where that happened. Yeah. And and it's almost like we stain the world around us. And part of that is the residue of sin in our lives. We tend to stain things and break things. But when Jesus marks a place, it magnifies it, it redeems it, it renews it. And my, even just thinking about that first part of John, my, like he marked Cana. I did something powerful there. Man, I just want God to mark Miami, like through us, mark us and mark Miami. So anyway, so like he's back at this place where he's done something powerful that will forever be changed. His fame is spread. It spreads so much so where there's this guy who has an issue. He hears that Jesus is in town. And what he does is he he leaves his space and he goes to interact with Jesus. He says, yo, yo, Jesus, I got this situation. My son is sick. He's going to die. Like, he might not die. Like, he is, he is, getting ready to breathe his last. There's a a level of urgency that this man has. So the distance between where this man was and where Jesus is was about 18 to 22 miles. And so there's no automobiles, no planes. And it wasn't one of these situations where he took a calorie and then he walked. We know that because towards the end of this, he's going to walk again. So he walked 22 miles one way. To get to Jesus. That's a big deal. I heard about him. He has this potential to do something. I got a need. Let's go. It's the beginnings of faith where risk moves you to action. He doesn't know it's getting ready to happen. He just has this hope and he goes. I like that. And so he risks. He finds Jesus. And Jesus hears this man's issue. And I like the way that verse 48 reads. It says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down <laughs> before my child dies. I just, I just love the, the authenticity of that scene where Jesus says to him, unless you, now that you is plural. So he's not just talking to him. He's talking to everybody around him, which means that Jesus is trying to make a point, not just for him, but for everybody, which means us included. And this guy's like, yo, Jesus, 
I really don't care about the point that you're trying to make. Like, I got a need. Do something. And Jesus doesn't smite him. Right? He's like, you disrespected me. Smite. He doesn't do that. He still actually meets this need. I just love the vulnerability here. But it is telling, though. Jesus is making a point that we need to understand. He is trying to unfold something that is absolutely ground altering and foundational to how we relate to Jesus, how we relate to others and how we relate to the life around us. Let me explain. This is an issue of timing that's happening right here. There's urgency. My son is about to die. Fair game. No parent would not understand this. This is urgent. Yet his urgency doesn't necessarily move Jesus to action. Because you're not, Jesus isn't going to be reduced to some back pocket magician that you could just pull out when you need him. So that's one. So that, that's part of it. But it starts to unpack the nature of timeliness that, that right here, like he's like right now, Jesus is like not yet. And that's that's conflict 101. Right. But 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 notice this. Eventually, he's going to receive the reward of his faith. But in this moment, he's just experiencing the trial of waiting. And in that waiting period, you start to see some, some pretty rich truths about Jesus and, and time. Let me say this. First is this. Jesus's days delays are always intentional. He, he didn't respond affirmatively because he needed to reveal some truth that this guy was not getting. It was a very intentional delay. Another one is that Jesus operates on his time, not mine. I don't like that. I don't, I just, I just don't know how to share it. I don't, I really don't like that. I, I've, I've, I've become more and more convinced living in a city like Miami, where there is this thing, Miami time, that I'm very prideful with my time. Like, in fact, the, the nature of arrogance that often shows up with me is I want people to operate on my time, <laughs> like conform around me. That's pride, which leads to this other, other truth in this timeliness interaction. This could almost seem like so unempathetic. Like, Jesus, that's kind of harsh. I, I need you to be a little bit more of that nice Jesus. You know, the one that has like roses and dandelions in your ear, like be that Jesus, the finger painted Jesus. The one who would just jump and be like, yeah, your son is, let me heal him right now. Don't be the Jesus that says, unless you see signs of, I need you to be more, more soft, if you will, more empathetic. But, but, but there's a difference in the views of urgency and, and Jesus and me having different views of what's urgent. It doesn't empty Jesus of empathy, but it may and it can and it should empty me of entitlement. Let me explain. So I have realized something in the last nine years of my life, and it is that for children, gum and phones are crack. So they will walk up to you, even other kids' children, and they'll be like, yo, you, you got a phone on you? I'm like, yo, my chick, like, yo, man, don't fuck me. I don't even know whose kids you are. And it, am I lying? You know what I'm saying? It's like, can I get some gum? And I know my kids have done that to you. Let me just apologize. I promise I'm a good parent, but they just, it's a thing, yeah? And so when my kids come to me and they're like, dad, 
You know, can I, can I get that phone? I want to play the Sonic Dash situation. Um, Dad, can I get this phone, the family phone, so I can play Duolingo? Dad, let me get some of that Trident off of you. Like, I've usually, when I'm good, I'm like, not yet. When I'm bad, I'm like, nah, <laughs> like, back up, you know? And, and what, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, in this moment, like, you don't actually need that as much as you do but you're attached to it, you think you're entitled to it, so if I kind of give you space by saying not yet, maybe it will start to empty you of your entitlement that you actually need it. Does that make sense? We do it all the time. And that's the Lord saying, you know what, not yet. Because maybe you don't need it as bad as you think, and if you got it right now, you would do terrible things with it. And so what, what we, we, we get here, if I could kind of bow this up a little bit, then move on, is this idea that there, with the Lord there are no's and there's not yet's. And part of our life is having to wrestle with which one is which. Like, is this a no from God or is this a not yet? And we don't want to confuse the two because no's mean full stop. Not yet means keep going. Some things that may help um, discern or distinguish no's and not yet's, because we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of turning no's into not yet's and not yet's into no's, is like some questions to, to wrestle with. I wrestle with these. Is this a, is this a good that's been promised to me? That I'm, that I'm waiting for, waiting on, believing God for? Is this a need or a want? There's a difference. Um, and what's my motivation? Like, what's the pull? What is the instinctual gravitas in me that's causing me to say, I, I got to have, I got to have, or I want? And as I start to wrestle with those things, like, I get a little bit more exposed, and then I'm able to say, okay, God say it now, because my motivation is trash, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because this is actually not a need, this is a want, and probably not a good one. Um, and it's not something that you promise, it's something that I'm holding you to, which means that I'm replacing your role with mine's. In fact, that's actually the tension here. Unless you, you, plural, see signs and wonders, you will never believe. He is not emptying the power of miracles and signs and wonders and the overtly demonstrative to produce faith. He is addressing the tendency to reduce Jesus. And when we reduce Jesus, we rob him of honor. You know that. You have people in your lives that you really don't know how good at stuff they really are. We have this weird cultural moment where it's like, maybe you've heard this phrase, the death of expertise. Like everybody's actually an expert. And so like we're armchair psychologists. We go to WebMD. You know what I mean? And we're just like, oh yeah, I figured this whole thing out. Like, And so it's like, DIY on steroids. And so we just don't need anybody. So like we, we immediately discount anybody who's given time to something. Ah, you don't know as much as I do because I YouTube it. It's like that's, <laughs> that's dumb. But we do it, right? Uh, yes, especially with, especially with issues regarding emotional, spiritual health. Like everybody's an Enneagram expert. I'm like, okay, amen. Like, okay, I don't, but that's what we do. And in doing so, like, we just create this atmosphere where we don't honor as well as we can or should. 
And you, and you know how that feels when you feel like, man, you've put something in and you're worthy of something in a good way. And somebody comes to you and they just kind of don't put no respect on your name. And I was like, I need you to know my value and like add tax, right? They don't treat me like I'm just somebody else. And that's, there's some beautiful things there. But we do that at Jesus. It's all the more in this atmosphere. But when we reduce him, that's what we're doing. We're robbing him of honor. You're just like me, Jesus. Not really. But if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody, I mean, this church is filled with some pretty amazing people. If we just actually listen to one another's stories, so I have the privilege of being a pastor, so people like want to talk to me, and so I, and I like actually like listening, and so like you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, like man, you're amazing. <laughs> you did what? In how much? What? You you died? Like this is a very interesting scenario. Like people are super amazing here. Like, you know, and so if we had the privilege of just kind of like listening to one another's stories, what we would see is that not only are people worthy of some levels of honor in here, but by engaging with them based on who they are, we actually experience a level of joy because we can learn from them. I can't tell you how many times I text people like, hey, man, what do you think about this? Because you're just, just further along in life than me. And so when we reduce Jesus, signs and wonders, and then I'll be my back pocket magician. We don't just rob him of honor. We rob ourselves of joy. But Jesus is aggressive about changing that. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. There's an urgency here, though. I have a need. It's not a want. It's a need. My son is precious to me. Come with me. And Jesus gives him a word. He says this. Go and your son will live. Now, it is, oh, it is packed with potency. Just the power to speak and something happens is, but the level of tenderness and grace and even humility in this. So this, this official, this, this, this official, this man of honor, if you will, he was an official in Herod's court. If you are familiar with the gospel story, Herod was a king, the fake king, by the way, but the king who killed Jesus's cousin. And so Jesus is getting ready to heal this son of a man who's associated with a murderer, and he's cool with it. And grace is it's just crazy, yeah. And so he so he gives him this word, and and the next part of this is is pretty powerful too. This the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He believed that he started walking. Now, I want to camp here for a good chunk of time. He entered into what is the long walk of faith. 22 miles now, you do the math. If you're a power walker, yeah. You, you, you maybe walk seven, seven minutes a mile or seven, a mile for seven minutes. And, and so that may be like four hours is how long of a walk this would have took you. If you're one of the Miami walkers, you know, the walk where you want to be seen. So you're like, you take your time, you stroll, you bounce, see it all the time. Go to Avatar Mall. I'm like, you just want to look pretty. It's fine. It's hot. Why do you have that on? You know, leather. But so you're one of those Miami walkers. So you kind of stroll. It's maybe about 20 minutes per mile. So that's about seven to eight hours. But that's assuming the road is straight and easy and there's no obstacles in front. Well, that's not the area that they lived in. If you've ever been 
to Jerusalem or any place in the Middle East. Don't go now. It's fire right now. So don't go now. Go in like seven years, you know? But if you've ever been, what you, what you start to see is the ground is treacherous. It's hilly. It's like Miami's flat. This is not this area. So this isn't a seven, eight-hour walk. This is a journey that he's having to walk. And it's a journey that started at 1 p.m., which means that he's going to stop. He's going to eat. And he's going to sleep. We know he's going to sleep because he's going to end up at his home the next day. And so you, you're, you're, you're talking about conservatively, conservatively, at least, at least a 16-hour journey. But really, you're talking like 18, 20, almost a full day of just walking and wondering and waiting. Can you put that picture up? Is that fair? Can we do that? Um, all my kids look like me because African genes are strong. Um, they are. That's Joel. Uh, Joel's our second child. She was born in a very interesting season in our life. My little brother was just murdered. Uh, we didn't know who we were going to have. Um, so, like, when we went to go see to the doctors, you know, like, you know, the Lord, you know, reveals, like, and she was hiding herself. So we was like, is this a boy? Is this a girl? We didn't know. Um, and I was like, that's good. If it's a girl, always cover yourself up. Like, it's just little dad stuff. It's just weird. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so we didn't know. And so she was born, and it was like, oh, Joelle. And then we named her um, Wamezi, um, which is um, Ebo for the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so, so, she, so she's, she has a unique space in my heart. All my kids do, but she does as well. That picture, when it was taken, now you remember when that picture was taken? It's very interesting when that picture was taken. She was just born. Obviously, she's been born for a little bit, not a lot because she doesn't look as much as an alien because when kids come out, they have like a little alien head. Um, and um, we were in the living room and some of our roommates were surrounding us. Dominic's mom was in town. And her mom was holding her, and like she's always smiling. If you see Joel now, she's like she just always smiles. Very fascinating. But like her face looks so blue, and we're like, yo, like, like y'all see it? her face is blue. Is she okay? And it was like the smile went from like vibrant to almost lifeless. And so we we lived in down, like downtown Atlanta at the time, and so we lived like right close to the hospital. And so I hopped in the car, Diamond hopped in the car, we broke laws and we got there. And they, I don't even remember what they said happened. They said it was some type of random infant syndrome where they stopped breathing or something. I was like, I don't really care, do something. <laughs> you know, that was really my posture, was do something. And it was, God, you need to do something too because I just lost my brother. I can't lose her. You know, it was just a very interesting moment. And, and, and God was gracious. God was super gracious. And we took this picture like right after it. It was just like, always just to be reminded about her smile. I'll bring it up to say, the level of anxiety that exists in the mind and heart of a parent when their child is not well is unquantifiable. It is very hard to describe it. You can add language, you can try to be as robust in your description as much as possible, but until you feel it, until 
until you feel it, y'all. Like it's just, it's just hard to describe. It's something I pray none of us ever have to feel, but it's something I know all of us will have to feel as parents. And if you live, you'll feel something comparable to it at some point in time in your life. It's the anxiety attached to the unknown. What's going to happen? It weighs on us. It can make 10 minutes feel like 10 hours or 10 hours feel like 25 to 30 years. And for him, I can just imagine, I'm just using my holy imagination here as a parent, as a human, that he's having to wander and walk back. And he's like, yo, man, like Jesus did say, and like he, he did turn water into wine here, and he's done other miraculous stuff. And I don't really know him like that. I don't really get down with him like that. Um, but I'm not really following him. But man, he, he does kind of have power, but I know I believe, but is it really going to happen? And, and he has all of this time to just think about what's happening. And then have you ever tried to sleep when you're anxious? Like, by the way, that's, that's how a lot of addiction starts. You're like, man, I can't sleep. So let me just go ahead and get this bottle. Let me get this melatonin gummy and let me just get after, like, you know, and it's like, because you just, your mind is just racing and it's constantly, and you just like, like, I just can't rest. And so I just imagine this restless moment of fear and pain that this dude had to walk on. And my, that, is, that is just part of the walk of faith. There's, you, just, you just cannot, you cannot escape it if you act in faith. Let me say it like this. Faith, at least walking in faith, it doesn't necessarily eliminate the possibility of anxiety. And I think there's times when we talk about faith and that's what we mean. It's like, oh, I have faith and so I just won't be anxious anymore. And then we'll like hijack certain scriptures if you're a Christian. We'll hijack like Philippians 4 and we'll be like, well, you just present all things or pray in the peace of God and you won't be anxious. That's like, well, what does that actually mean? Because it definitely doesn't mean that. It means that you're actually choosing, not that something magically is happening to you. But while faith, it, it doesn't necessarily eliminate the possibility of anxiety, it can create the possibility of joy. So it's worth the risk. Faith of all is worth the risk. And so, so in, in risk and faith, he's walking. And what's, what's so powerful about this is he's walking with quasi-level certainty. It's the certainty that will have to increase, which means it's quasi-level certainty. But he is expressing something powerful about the framework of faith. So if you track through the history of the people of God, like there's this man that stands out as what is known the father of faith. His name is Abraham. And Abraham's story is very fascinating. And it can be broken down into this. Um, I, I've said this before. I hijacked it from somebody. I don't know who they hijacked it for, so I can't give that person credit. But, but it goes like this. Like, when you, when you see God interacting with Abraham and calling him to this long walk of faith, a road that's marred with anxiety, yet hopefulness and fear and courage and risk, and you're just going... This is, what, this is essentially the framework of faith. Abraham models, this man modeled as well. So, so, so God, out of all of the humans, 
says, Abraham, I am going to make from you a great nation. I just need you to go. Get out. And Abraham essentially is like, well, well God, where? He's like, Yo, I'll show you later. You just keep going. God says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Where? Ah, I'll show you later. You just keep wandering. Abraham, I'm, I'm going to give you a son. How? I'm 90 something. Ah, I'll show you later. You just wait. Abraham, go to the top of that mountain and put your son, whom you love, first time love appears in the entire Bible, put your son, whom you love, to death. Abraham says, God, why? I'll show you later. Just climb. And at every step of the way, he's walking. He's walking. Because the power actually isn't in the act of faith, it's in the object of faith. The power isn't in the walking, it's in the who you're walking with and who's told you to actually go. It's the object. And this, he is going to receive a powerful reward, but it's actually not because he started walking, it's because Jesus said go, he's gonna be healed. Does that make sense? But he is walking out this rich framework, anxiety in his heart, but he's still going. I love it. But the, the progress of faith, the potency of faith, the richness of faith is seen not just in what happens to him, but what happens to others. So, so he, 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 is, he is walking downwards through this hilly land. He gets close to his home close enough where the people start rushing him and they're like, yo, like, your son is recovering. He's like, oh my gosh, you can just imagine, just imagine the joy on this man's face. Yeah, he, he's gonna live, wow, it's awesome. And then, he, but he, he has enough humility and, and intuition to be like, oh, I, what, I, what happened? What, when did he start getting better? Well, it was about one o'clock yesterday. Oh, that's when, that's when Jesus told me. And then he believed, which, which shows something to me that's necessary. There, there's, there's something almost, how can I say this? Rich yet limiting when you're just experiencing the hand of God. When you're just receiving good from God. There's something rich, completing and fulfilling when it's relational, which is what's happened here. He's actually moved from I'm just receiving something good from God to I'm receiving God himself. Because he says, and now he believed. Which means that it was, it was more than this, I'm just going to start walking. But it's like my whole entire life is going to be orbited around this man who said, you go, something will happen. You can believe in it. And not only did he believe, his whole household believed as well, which means that the pathway of faith is never just for a person, it's for people. It doesn't just work individually. It works itself out collectively, which means people should be benefited by faith that we live out and grace we've been given. Leads to a question, who, if anybody, 
in your life right now is benefiting, benefiting from grace that you've been given or faith that you're living now? Who's benefiting from that? Because if it's nobody, you have to question if it's actually grace you've been receiving. And if you're actually living out faith or you're just impulsive or you just take calculated risks because you're good at creating good investments or you're driven or you're more entrepreneurial, that ain't the essence of faith. That's an act that's not tied to an object, which is a person. Are you tracking with me? The faith that transforms, the faith that saturates this is, is faith that's personal. It's very personal. It's relational. It's not detached and directionless. It's not this arbitrary act of just courage. It's this tie to a person named Jesus, and then I'll go. I like that. Now, why, why, am I, why, why has this been devotionally rocking me and, and where I want to close? Is this. I am convinced that we live very safe lives because we live in a very scary world where we know that we can't control the outcomes fully. And so there's this one movie, Dodgeball, like, I love it. Like Vince Vaughn in his prime, you could dodge a wrench, you could dodge a ball. And he was on this team, the Average Joes, the name itself was trash, but you know, it is what it is. And like, he has this interaction um, with this person who's auditing them. And, and he's like, man, I like to live life with like low expectations. Cause I find that if you have low expectations, you never get disappointed. And my first was like, man, that's like good wisdom. Thank you, Vince Vaughn. Uh, yeah. And I just started like thinking about that more. Like when I first saw that movie, I'm like, yo, that's kind of trash and like sad. To, to essentially say, I'm gonna live life only pursuing things that I know I can accomplish myself. That's terrible. That's a very terrible way to live. And that ain't Christianity at all. In fact, that's the opposite. The very nature of Christianity is to live life that you can't do on your own. The very nature of Christianity is to, to have desires birthed in you that you, by your own strength, cannot accomplish. That is faith. And there's a lot of things that can mark, that can, that can mark 2020 for us. It should be faith. If it hasn't been in your life, may it be now that this story where we see this man with deep need confronted by God is now leaving with a greater experience of faith. He started walking. And for some of you, you just need to start walking. I don't know how else to say that. I've really thought about it. I was like, how can I say that? Ah, start walking. Start walking. There, there, there's stuff where you just, you just know you have lowered the bar of belief in your life. And it's like, this can't. This is how it's always going to be. Nothing good could come from this. So I'm just going to, and then I'm going to hold God accountable for it. And I, you know, just start walking. Just, just go. How? Where? I don't know. He'll show you later. Go. Some of us 
has started walking, but we're on that long road, that long walk, where it's not 20 hours, it's like 20 years. And I just say, keep walking. So start, if you just start, and if you started and you're just walking, and you know it's not a no, but it's a not yet, yeah, you, you just keep walking. And then we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Is that cool? Let's pray.